Welcome to the Contrast Church Podcast. Contrast is located in Grandview, Ohio, with the mission to help people be with Jesus, become like Him, and live out His mission together. For more information on attending our meetings, our missional communities, or giving, visit contrast.church. book, which is very exciting. Uh, If you haven't already, it took me a while to find James, so if you're still looking, you can go ahead and uh, find it. We're going to be in James 1, starting at the beginning. Uh, James is a very unique book in the Bible. It's one of the arguably first written books in the New Testament. It has the quickest turnover from Jesus' ministry and his uh, death and resurrection uh, to the book of James. And so we're going to jump in in James 1. Uh, but I, I want to start off with this, and I thought this was kind of a fun fact. A lot of times we think of Jesus, we think of like this 30-year-old grown man who typically has uh, blonde hair and blue eyes, which is not accurate uh, to the Middle East, where he would have been from. Uh, but we also don't think about the fact that he had a family, that his family that he was raised with was actually pretty large. Uh, if you read in the texts um, in the Bible, you can find out that Jesus had at least five brothers and at least two sisters. Uh, I don't know if you have uh, six siblings, but imagine a size of that family. It'd be pretty ridiculous. But James is essentially the brother of Jesus. So he writes this book from a pretty unique perspective, and I find it funny that James, when he's writing this book, actually uh, doesn't really believe Jesus is the Christ until he resurrects. So his whole childhood, James has to deal with Jesus as his brother, and uh, not being sure what to make of it. I don't know about you, but if Jesus was my brother, I would have a very hard time. <laughs> uh, I'm sure that he was mom's favorite, let's be honest, right? It's Jesus. So, uh, But James writes this book, and, and this book is only five chapters long, but it, it is probably one of the, I would say, a lot of people's favorite book in the New Testament because it's so practical, it's so hands-on. And in some ways, it, it's like an instruction manual. It's just like, here's what you need to do. If you follow Jesus, this is what you do. And, and it's not as cryptic as we sometimes feel about other, other books or other languages. But James uh, has a lot packed into this. So I'm excited for the next three months, we're going to be tackling the book of James, going through all 570 words. And uh, we're going to have at least, I think, six different teachers, which is going to be awesome. I'm going to get a break for the summer a little bit. And we're going to have some different voices in our church and other areas come teach us, which is some of my favorite Um, things to just sit under other people's teaching. So I'm really excited for that. Um, But as we jump in here, let's start in verse 1 from James. Pretty Pretty good start. From James, a slave of God in the Lord Jesus Christ, and to the 12 tribes dispersed abroad. Greetings. Now, when you think about James saying a slave of God, this is like a common... um, entry point of writing a letter. It was essentially like if I was to write like Trey, a follower of Jesus, right? You know how maybe in people's Instagrams they have like a little bio. They're like God first, family, friends, all that kind of stuff. This is just a way of kind of kind of revealing that. Um, But James is actually a pretty powerful character. So obviously not believing in his brother being the Messiah until he uh, resurrects and then he's like, well shoot, this is crazy. James becomes uh, a significant leader in the Jerusalem church. So when Jesus dies, resurrects, is with the disciples and a couple hundred other people for, like, for uh, several weeks, and he ascends to heaven, and they start the church. And then we read in the book of Acts this kind of messy, beautiful, organic growth of the church. 
from Jerusalem, they send out all these different churches. It's basically like the hub of, of Christianity as we would know it. And so Jerusalem had immense significance because whenever they would, would wrestle with something, they would kind of send it out and say, this is essentially what we're doing. Now, the hard part about uh, being a Christian in the first basically 100 years of this is that there was tons of Jewish people who were coming to know Jesus and believe in him, but had this cultural upbringing of being Jewish. And so they were under what we call the Torah, which is the first five books. It's the law of the Jewish people. And they're trying to figure out, so do we throw this out? Do we follow this and follow Jesus? What do we do with that? And so that's why a lot of these books have these kind of distinguishing things. But when um, James is in this church, they're trying to figure out how we do this and how do we do this well. And 2,000 years later, I think a lot of our churches are still trying to figure out how do we do this and how do we do it well. And we disagree on things, right? We have different opinions on different things. Um, But James, what's unique about him is he is Jewish. And so he follows the Jewish law. And the tension that has been happening with with, um, the churches at this time was, if I'm not Jewish, what we call a Gentile, which we're all Gentiles unless we have Jewish lineage, uh, how do we follow Jesus? Do we need to get circumcised? Do we need to practice all the Sabbath rules? Do we need to give this certain amount to the temple, but we don't really like have a temple anymore? So how does this all work? That's what James and the leaders at the Jerusalem church are trying to figure out and communicate. And so when it says it's written to the, the, the tribes, the 12 tribes among uh, dispersed abroad, what he's talking about is, hey, these are the things that we've sort of leaned in on, and these are the things that you should follow as well. And so James is writing a letter that has a lot of significant um, power to what it means to follow Jesus. What's also staggering about it, and what we're going to talk about today, the first kind of section is talking about trials. James is actually martyred in in 62 AD, so not very much um, has gone from... um, from when this book was written around 50 in the 50s to him dying in 62. He was either pushed off an embattlement, stoned, or beaten with a club. We're not quite sure. But any of those, not good, right? And, uh, and he, he died for his faith. He really did. He was a forerunner for, for Jesus in a lot of ways. And we can learn a lot from James. But I think one of the things that people struggle with in the book of James when you read it is it doesn't talk about Jesus all that much. It feels like it, it can almost be a separate uh, book and if you're really nerdy and you're interested in the canonization of the Bible, how the Bible was put together, there was a lot of uh, tension between the, uh, the process of this because they were like, well, it just feels like such a separate thing. But when you start to read the book of James, what you realize is James is regurgitating all of Jesus' teachings and his ethics throughout this entire book without just being explicit about it. For instance... He talks about finding joy in trials, which Jesus talked about in the Sermon on the Mount. He talks about the idea of perfection in the spiritual regard uh, that Jesus talks about. He talks about the generosity uh, of God for those that are in need. He talks about the call to suspend anger, um, being a doer of the word, not just hearing the word, um, the demand of the law and the demand of us following Jesus in light of that, uh, the significance of mercy, the call to peace, Jesus' concern with us either loving the world or loving God. Um, he, he talks about humility and what that means in light of following Jesus. He talks about not judging and in many ways, um, adding the, the, the ideas of how Jesus would say not to judge and to judge, judge others. He talks about patience. And so all these different things, and I'm not reading any of the references, but they're all found throughout the gospel. So when we read James, we are reading 
James's heart of the teachings of Jesus. So when we read it, we have to realize that the things he's saying are basically a, a reiteration of what we've spent in the last two years of in Matthew, which is pretty cool. So you'll probably notice hints of that as we talk about it. Um, but his, his entire goal of James, if you're like taking notes or you want to write down a main idea of the next 12 weeks, is James is, is writing practically to Christians and what it means to see their faith practiced by their actions. And so if you just read the book of James, you had heard nothing else of the Bible, you would think like being a Christian is doing a lot of things. And James is focusing on that because all these people are claiming to be followers of Jesus, but they don't really know what that means. They don't really know, should I do this? Should I not do that? What does it look like to live in this way? And James is going to say, here it is. He's very practical, and he writes several illustrations that look exactly like that. So that's, that's what we're going to talk about, and that's where uh, the chair comes into place. Um, if I was to grab this chair, this is a very simple illustration, but I've probably used this illustration before. When we talk about the idea of faith, and you say, well, I have faith in Jesus, or I've placed my faith in Jesus, or I believe in Jesus, when we talk about that, and James will even talk about this later, you know, he says, well, even the demons believe in Jesus. So what does that mean? Right? If I say, well, I believe in Jesus, like, well, even the demons believe in Jesus. And you're like, well, that's not good. Don't want to be on the same level as a demon, right? So what does that mean? When we talk about placing our faith on something, uh, we, we think oftentimes in just this cerebral aspect, right? Oh, my brain, I understand this concept, right? Maybe you uh, read all the religious texts and you're like, you know what, Christianity is the most compelling and I believe it intellectually. Maybe you've experienced something that you just can't explain and it's, it's caused you to lean into um, God and the spirit and, and, and what that has done in your life. Or maybe you're just like struggling and you're like, I can't do this and I got to figure something out and I don't know what to do, right? And you have all these different ways that you get to Jesus or you're, you're flirting with Jesus, you're not quite sure. And you say, all right, I've placed my faith in Jesus now. And we have these moments, what we call like your salvation moment, right? Your conversion moment. And not that those things are wrong or bad, but a lot of times when the rubber hits the road, someone asks you, what does it mean to place your faith in Jesus? It's actually like we have a lot of different answers. Well, I said this prayer. Well, I said in Jesus' name. Like those who say Jesus' name will be saved, right? Or, well, I stopped doing this thing. Or I do all these good things, right? You have all these different angles of what it means. And so for me, I, want, I just want to help you understand this in the book of James and even in the Bible, what it means uh, for faith and belief. And so the Greek word, I know you're like, I'm not a big uh, language scholar here, but you need to know this. The Greek word uh, for belief oftentimes uses belief or faith is pistis. That's the noun. The verb which is oftentimes used, is pisteo. And, and what, it, what it means is it, connote, it connotes an action. It's not just something that you believe in your head, and this is not how first century people would think, that you just kind of separate all these things. It was your soul believes in something, it lives into that reality. And so a good example with this chair is, if I tell you, hey, um, I believe that this chair will hold you up when you sit in it, that's great. I believe that. Um, and I, I've, I've either read the user manual, I've seen people sit in it, right? You have all these different reasons why you believe this chair will hold up a person when they sit in it, right? And, and you, you can believe that, but just to say that doesn't really mean much. 
Because when you say that, that person has to take your word and value. They have to trust in what you're saying. And so belief in what we'll see in James is he's saying it's not just a belief that we've seen it. It's not just a belief that we've, we've, we're an engineer and we understand how like the legs are strong enough and they would hold and it makes sense with gravity and all this logic, right? It doesn't really matter unless you say, you know what, I believe in it. I'm going to sit in the chair. And then when I sit in it, thank God it didn't break, right? That would have been funny. Uh, you sit in the chair, and everyone looks around, and they say, wow, you really do believe that chair will hold you up. And many of us as Christians, especially in the West, we just like to show off the chair, and we're like, oh, well, I don't want the implications of what it means to sit in it, right? I don't really want to follow what Jesus has to say about this area, but it's cool, and it's great, and you should read it. But I'm, I'm not actually going to place my faith into this. I'm not actually going to believe that, that when I when I remove my anger from my heart, which, which is murder in Jesus' mind, right? Then when I remove that, when I forgive a brother that I find deep healing, and that, that's what Jesus calls me to do. It's not act, I don't believe it's worth it, right? You, you have these things that you subscribe to cerebrally, but you don't actually live as though you're true. And that's what James is going to get at. And so this first chapter, he's going to confront this reality of what it means for our faith to become real and to have action. So we must understand that James, what he's showing is faith and belief are an activity. They're not just a cerebral understanding. And this is very tense in the world we live in today because the cultural understanding of our being and our will and our consciousness and all of these things laced together is incredibly infected by the idea that if I don't feel something, I shouldn't do it. Right? If I don't feel like it, if my heart's not there, I shouldn't do it. And that's, that's true sometimes. But I can't tell you the, a time when, when my wife and I are hanging out with Rhoda and we smell poop. And we're like, someone's got to change that. Right? I'm like, well, sorry, babe, I don't feel like it. So I guess you're going to have to do it. Right? Have I tried that one, Sarah? That, that would not work well, right? Yeah. I've tried that one. Yeah, it doesn't work, does it? You're like, that is... That is poop. That is not true. Okay? How about if you're studying for an exam and you get to the test and you're like, man, I just don't feel like taking this. I think I'm just going to take a pass. What do you think, professor? They're like, that's not how it works. Okay? You got to show up and take the test. Otherwise, we can't give you the credit so you have integrity behind what job you're going to pursue. Right? It's just not how the world works. Uh, you, you wake up in the rain, right? Which is very common in Ohio. And you're like, I just don't want to go to work today. And sometimes we have enough PTO, we just decide not to go to work. But most times we say, got to go, even though I don't feel like it. This is the world that I live in. I do things I don't want to do. And that is really important for us to think about in faith because so much of what Jesus calls us to do is very much against our desires because a lot of our desires are actually sinful, believe it or not. And so how do we reconcile this? Paul, uh, um, James is going to give us a really encouraging passage. And so as we jump in here, starting in verse 2, James is going to go through a journey with us from 2 to verse 18. And so let's jump in. He says in verse 2, My brothers and sisters, consider it nothing but joy when you fall into all sorts of trials, because you know the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect effect so that you will be perfect and complete and not deficient in anything. James starts off his letter right away addressing a, a, a group of people. Remember, this is written in several churches. So this isn't just at one church. This is all over these different cities. He addresses this community of the Christians that have been dealing with trials. He immediately wants to encourage them. 
And he uses this word consider, and consider is actually an action. When we talk about considering something, we think oftentimes intellectually, right? You should consider the options, right? You should consider if you want to make this big purchase or buy this car, right? Considering is a, is a verb, but it's very intellectual, right? It's very much in our brain. But what, what um, James is getting at here is he's saying evaluate the circumstances that you're in. And he's saying consider in the midst of all those the, the end of it. And so what I think is the best way to understand this is instead of looking at the trial itself, you look through the trial to what is occurring at the end of that. A good example of that is, um, is if you're dealing with a hardship, let's just say that you're, um, like, you know, if you're just sick, right, and you have a cold, right, and you are just frustrated. You're like, this is stupid. I have a cold. I hate this. I can't, I either can't work or I have to slow down or I can't be around people or whatever it may be, right? You can, in that moment, be miserable and like, this sucks. I hate this. I can't smell or breathe or whatever, right? And you can be really frustrated at it. And, and, and most times, to think through, man, like, what, is, what will be my life on the, on the end of this is very hard for us to think through because, like, it's a cold. It's life. We get sick. I'm not going to, like, wake up three days later and feel way better than I did before. And so for a lot of times in the moment of whatever we're dealing with, and I'm just using illness as an example, but there's a lot of other trials they were dealing with, it's, it's so in our mind in that moment we can't see through to what, what will become of it in the end. And sometimes even when we try, we say, well, what good it will come of this? Because I don't know about you. You've had things happen in your life where you're, like, Still trying to figure out the good in this, right? This was just evil, or it sucked, or I got no explanation, right? And, and that's what people are dealing with here, actually, in, in these churches. Um, and we're going to get into what that specifically was. But James is encouraging us, and, and what, I want to go through the formula that he's giving us, because that will really help us understand how we are to find joy in the midst of this. Because we know that joy is not circumstantial. Happiness is circumstantial. You have a really great day, you're happy. You can have a really terrible day and still be joyful. So how do we find joy in the midst of this? And what he focuses on is the testing of your faith in the midst of this. And for us, we have to figure out what, is, what does a trial actually mean? Because like I said, I mean, you can use the word illness, or you can be like, man, got a flat tire today. What a trial. But what does trial actually mean? What is, what is James actually saying? The Greek word uh, parasmos, it means potentially two things. It can be used two different ways. One is an inner enticement to sin. And two is external afflictions, particularly persecution. So things that would tear down your faith. So is a flat tire a trial? Maybe if it ruins your, 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 you're like, I don't know if God's real. This tire's killing me, right? But we joke about that. But there are things that each of us have that are, I mean, we are in the precipice of disbelief. Right? Like if you lost your job, and consequentially you lost your home, and you were desperate and you were clinging, to whatever, who could help you, raise your family, whatever, right? Like, you, you're going to have trouble believing God's, God's good. Or someone in your family just dies tragically from a car accident, cancer, a young age, whatever it is, right? Like, you just start to question these things. You start to be like, this doesn't make any sense, and this person died, and I'm still waiting for the blessing out of this, and I'm not finding it, right? I mean, that's, this is the world we live in. It's very real. And a lot of people don't come to church because of that, because they had too many of these things it drew them so far away that they're like, I, I can't reconcile through all of that. It's just too much. There's just too many bad things. And, and many of us deal with that. Like I said, the flat tire might be the end of it for you. We laugh about it, but it very well might for some of us. For some of us, it might not. And these Christians that James is writing to are dealing with this daily. Because what they're dealing with is, I call myself a follower of Jesus, and now nobody wants to buy any of my stuff. 
or Rome doesn't like it, and so now they're taxing me at 80% instead of 15. Or my, half of my family is still Jewish, and they don't want to be around me. Right? Like, these are real things. We follow Jesus, and we're nervous to get baptized because people, you know, have to look at us for four minutes, right? That's our persecution. But people, like, we, we experience real persecution, and it's more insidious in America because for us, you know, we aren't, being jailed to be here right now. You're not being jailed to have a Bible at your house. We're not dealing with these things, but at the end of the day, these, these things affect us. We have trials. They're just different in the way they look. And James, he, who brings up these different trials, whatever they are, right? Maybe they are illness, financial issues. Um, these people are experiencing extreme hostility from the world. He says to consider joy. And he says in verse 3, because you know that this produces endurance. The word testing here that he uses is referred uh, to in process when silver or gold is refined by fire. If you're wearing a gold ring or you have silver, it doesn't just, they don't just mine it out of the ground like that. <laughs> it has to be continually heated up and refined and melted and refined, and they pull out all of the um, components of it that, that don't make it shine or nice, right? And he's saying in the same way that suffering is that same idea of refining fire. James is saying suffering is a means by which faith, which is tested in the fires of adversity, can be purified of any blemish, and it's therefore then strengthened. So the idea then is not that trials determine whether a person has faith or not, but they strengthen the faith that is already present. So if we just simply stop here and said trials can strengthen our faith, then in a weird way, trials might actually not be such a bad thing. But for many of us, we think about the trial itself and, and the damage of the trial, and we can't see through to the end. I think about, though, my life. I mean, if you think about your life, anything that was significantly hard is probably the most formative moments of your life. I mean, if you, if you decided to be married, talk about a formative thing, right? Decided to have kids, even more formative, right? Maybe uh, I think about, I, I think almost traumatically to my 5.30 a.m. hell week in, in soccer in high school, We'd have to get up and just run for two hours straight at 5.30 in the morning and lots of puking. And then we'd go home or we'd go to our friend's house, sit in a hot tub for an hour, go home, take a nap, and then get back up at 2 and then practice from 3 till 6. You know, this was two straight weeks we did this. And I'll tell you what, those first few days, you know, the, the pomegranate juice and oatmeal wasn't sitting too well for me. But after about a week, I felt like a machine. You're like, hey, Trey, go run 10 miles real quick. And I'd be like, cool, let's do it. Uh, we even did like swimming and we went up hills and all this type of stuff, right? It was ridiculous. And it weaned off a ton of people. I mean, our team would go from 50 to 25 within two weeks because people just could not see through to what this was doing to us. And what it was doing to us was allowing us to outrun any team in our area because we were in better shape than all of them. So even if our play wasn't as crisp, it's an 80-minute game. After a while, everyone starts chugging around. You only get so many subs. And before you know it, all of us are just dominating play. It's those type of things that, that put us ahead. And those type of things are incredibly hard. And in the moment when you're running to the fence to puke, to keep running, right? Or we would do like Indian runs. You've ever done an Indian run? Everyone runs at a pace. The person in the back has to sprint to the front, right? And you know that, that the time's coming when you're in the back and you're like, I got to somehow sprint through 20 guys, right? Which is like, at the end of it, it takes forever. And you're just, I can't do it. But if you can't do it, then the whole team is stuck, right? And you feel that rubber hit the road, and that's when the moment hits. If you can keep doing this, you look back and you say, wow, 
I hated it. It was terrible, but I wouldn't choose any other way. It was worth it. Life is like that, right? Whether you've climbed a mountain, you've gotten married, you've had kids, you, you, you took a really hard degree in school and you studied a ton, um, and you face these difficult trials, and when we do these things and we look back and we realize it wasn't really that bad, or maybe it was really bad, but we survived, we create an idea of endurance. And I like, I like to use the phrase um, better is a steadfastness of long-suffering. That the more that we're capable of suffering and en- enduring that, that actually that in itself is strengthening our faith. So you think about people, if you're trying to look up to someone, who's spiritually mature in my life, and you think about, man, who, who in my life is just like, I just want to be them. Is it somebody who suffers a lot? Not always. A lot of us look up to people maybe who are just really, really smart, right? They got it all figured out. And you think, man, this person is so smart. They just know everything, right? Or some of this person is really financially well off. I want to be successful like them, right? And you start to think these things. And what you realize is, is maybe they've suffered. Maybe they've, they've endured lots of hardship and they have a great level of tenacity. But most times we don't value suffering. We think suffering is intrinsically their fault, right? Oh, you're, you don't have a lot of money. Oh, well, you must have made a couple bad decisions. Or, oh, you're not very smart. Well, you probably didn't get a very good education or you didn't work hard in school, right? We think these things, and then we always think it's, and then we judge them when they suffer. And so for us, we don't, whether we realize it or not, we subtly try and avoid suffering. We subtly try and avoid trials because a more comfortable life is an easier life and it, it is deemed as more um, successful. And so this endurance that we see that he talks about is is incredibly important as we follow Jesus. Because if you follow Jesus and you haven't endured trials, you're not really following Jesus. Because Jesus in himself is very offensive to the way the world thinks and the world lives. I like to think about um, uh, trials and refinement like this. And this is, a, this is a really funny analogy. But I have this theory that the best way to find out if someone that you're dating is actually like someone you want to marry that has integrity all that is to break up with him. <laughs> now listen here. It's a theory. Because when you break up with them, you get their true self, right? They're not able to play games anymore. And if they start cussing you out or they, they start numbing on, you know, on alcohol or pornography or they start going online trying to beg for likes, right, they start to play these games, you really realize where their affections are. You really realize where their heart is. And you would have never known that had you not broken up with them. The ironic part is you just broke up with them, so to get back together with them and tell them you just did that is really messed up. So <laughs> the theory doesn't always play out practically, but... It's not a bad practice, right? If, if you fire someone and then they cuss you out, you're like, yeah, I think that, yep, feel better about firing you, right? There's this scene in, in the show Ted Lasso where um, this tech billionaire, Edwin Akufu, tries to schmooze one of the players to play on his team, and he's all like, you know, flying in a helicopter, giving this nice meal, being super nice to him. And then the second that Sam tells him no, he just flips a switch and starts cussing him out and throwing things and being a little baby about it. And you really start to see this is who this person is. And so in the midst of adversity, it really opens up ourselves. And this is why a lot of times when we're struggling, we're in trials, we're in adversity, we sort of hide or we isolate or we don't want to show people our, our, the reality of this. And so we come to church with a nice smile and a good, a good clothes on, and inside we're in, we're in turmoil. And these people are dealing with this, and, and when things get hard, what do, we, what do we cling to? How do we actually respond? If, if you had a really, really hard day, what is the thing you most look forward to when you get home? Is it a beer? Is it your spouse consoling you? Is it you spending time with the Lord? Is it you watching four hours of Netflix? Is it you just going to sleep? Like, get this day over with. Let me end it early. 
What is it? That's the thing that you are, are, are secure and most attached to. And so this is, when, when we look at finding joy in the midst of trials, we have to know that trials are going to happen, and we have to figure out how we respond. Do we thrash? Do we, do we numb in the moment? Or do we look through to what is occurring and how can we, we can be strengthened in that? And look through it and we build up endurance. In verse 5, then, this is where um, James encourages us, and he says, if anyone is deficient in wisdom, he should ask God who gives generously to all without reprimand, and it will be given to him. This idea of wisdom is not the worldly understanding, which we, we kind of think of wisdom as like an intellectual, sage, like just smart person, right? And they can, you can ask them a question, and they come back with like this one-line profound quip that's like very, very helpful. But what he's talking about here, and what Scott McKnight would argue wisdom means in this, is it's a, it's a kind of life that pursues justice, which... Uh, James will talk about in verse 20 later, uh, love in chapter 2, and peace. Justice, love, and peace along properly moral lines. That is, mean without resorting to violence or volatile language. To ask for wisdom is almost to ask for an ability to endure with the teachings of Jesus when pressure is put on people to live otherwise. If the rubber hits the road, the pressure is building, how do you respond? How do you react? And he says, you're going to struggle. Ask for wisdom. And when you're saying asking for wisdom, you're not asking for a one-line, this will get you out of this. You're asking for the teachings of Jesus to become real in your life. And so when you start to lose money, you start to have less and less, what do you do? Do you panic? Do you start to do things that are not filled with integrity? Do you start to cut corners? Do you start to obsess? Right? If you're starting to deal with, um, stress or doubt or worry about an event or a party or something, right? Do you start to let that just suck into your life until all of a sudden you can't even think or focus? Do you, do you let these things consume you? And then what he says in verse 6 is he must ask with faith and faith without doubting because in those moments we really don't believe that God will actually give us the wisdom because in the moment it feels we feel alone, we feel like we're struggling. And he says the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed around by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he'll receive anything from the Lord since they're double-minded and individual and unstable. And double-minded is really just when you ask God, but also do something else. That's what double-minded is. God, please help me. You're not responding right now, so I'm also going to do this other thing. Double my, I'll hedge my bets here, play two angles, right? That's what uh, Saul and David, if in the Old Testament, Saul, that's what Saul did. Lord, will I win this battle? The Lord doesn't respond quick enough. Okay, going to go over to this necromancer and ask, like, will I win this battle, right? And before you know it, he's conjuring up demonic activity because he just needs to know, and he doesn't have the patience. And there's several illustrations where that happens. David has an opportunity. What everyone would agree was right to kill Saul, who was trying to kill him. He's sitting in a cave. He can stab Saul while he's going to the bathroom in a cave. And he's like, nope, not going to do it. Why? Because David had the ability to be single-minded. He knew in, in that moment, the, this is not what the Lord has for me. And this is not my role to take the Lord's job. And so we're double-minded because we don't lean into prayer and for the Spirit to give us the love, joy, peace in the moments of these times. And, and, and we, before we know it, we start to cling for things that don't actually have true value. And this is what is true poverty. And this is what James is getting at when we read in verse 9, because he shifts gears here, and you're going to notice it feels like a whole different passage. He says, The believer of humble means should take pride in his high position, but the rich person should take pride in their humiliation, because they will pass away like a wildflower 
in the meadow. For the sun rises with the heat, it dries up the meadow. The petal of the flower falls off, its beauty is lost forever. So also the rich person in the midst of their pursuits will wither away. Happy is the one who endures testing because when he has proven to be genuine, he will receive the crown of life that God promised to those who love him. Now, this, this is him shifting gears, and what I had mentioned earlier is this is him honing in on the issue at the time, which was poverty. Christians were dealing significant economic hardships. All scholars mostly agree that, that economic stress was one of the primary difficult factors of the first century church. It was your, your, your you're cleaving from the reality of Rome and subjugation, and then, and then you're, all your family's Jewish, and you're saying, I believe this to be truth, and that causes immense economic hardship. And so you, if, if you were not a Christian here today, and you decide, you know, I want to follow Jesus, but in that moment, you knew I'm going to lose half of my company. I mean, that's what people are dealing with. Imagine the weight of that. And, and they're like, I don't know if I can do this. I don't know if I can keep doing this. I maybe need to fake it. Maybe I need to play my Jesus card on Sunday. My company runs like any other company that overworks people and maximizes profits and doesn't, doesn't, doesn't value people as people, right? Like you play this game, and then, and then he's saying, and then you ask for wisdom, and what do you expect? You're double-minded. You're all over the place. And you say, God, give me this thing, but I'm just going to keep doing this thing over here. It doesn't make any sense. It doesn't add up. And then we, endure, we experience trials, which are, are going to happen and in the moment of them, we start to cling for any sort of security. And in those moments, we realize, wow, my faith is not as strong as I thought it was. And I have not really ever sat in this chair. I've not really ever placed my faith in it. And I want to do everything else but actually just sit in the chair. Because sitting in the chair is a terrifying act. Because sometimes we believe the chair will not hold us. And that is what trials do. They remind us over and over. They create a pattern in a, a consistent reminder that God is truly there. And obviously he attacks wealth because they're losing all their wealth while the rich are gaining more and more and more. And in this time, this was a very common understanding that rich people could be rich for good reasons, but most times not. It was most times, you know, over-abusing people, slavery, or they were, came from a prominent family and they were spoon-fed all this. Like, rich people were typically not like, yeah, I just started, like, a metal shop and it really took off. Who would have known, right? It's not like... Uh, the world today, and, and so rich people typically had implied they'd gotten there in some certain way. And I was thinking about this, and I was thinking about this in relationship to trials and faith, and I, I was thinking that, you know, a lot of people stop following Jesus as they accumulate more wealth. But I have yet to meet anyone who has stopped following Jesus as they gave away more and more. Maybe, maybe you have. I haven't. And when he talks about wealth being this idea, you're this really proud, beautiful wildfire, but when the sun hits, when trials hit, your money's not going to save you. Amen. It might make life easier. You might not have years of medical bills. You might have a nice car, and you can play Bluetooth in your eight-hour car drive instead of listening to the radio. Right? You might have these things that make life better, but it's not going to fix it. It's not going to give you joy. And he's saying, look, in this moment, in this life, in this small glimpse of eternity, they're going to they're appear as though they're winning. But they will wither out. And what you're doing now in, in, in dealing with this economic hardship, I promise you it's worth it because you're going to get the crown of life. You're going to get the crown of life, which, you know, we would say is, is salvation, the idea of eternity with God. And their wealth is going to disappear as with themselves, and they're not going to get the crown of life. Now, it's not saying that rich people can't inherit the kingdom of God, but he's saying this is, this is what they're dealing with. They're looking at these rich people and asking, do I really want this? And he's saying, look, you're going to run for the crown of life. And this leads into the last part. Um, 
in verses 13 through 18. And this is, the, I, I, I want to camp just a little bit on this because this is, when you read this, makes absolute sense with where our brains go. In verse 13, it says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each one is tempted when they are lured away by their own evil desires. And then when desire conceives, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully grown, it gives birth to death. This is, this is the journey that, that James is taking us on. Because when we experience trials, when we have no mental ability to think through why this happened, this is where we go. Let me give you an example. Okay, you, you have a parent who, who dies at an early age, right? And you think, how in the world could this be any bit good? And then you think, well, God's all-knowing. God's all-powerful. So surely he allowed this. Surely he wanted me to experience this, and I've got to find the good in it, right? That's, that's how a lot of us think. And then years and years go by, we don't find the good, and then we're like, this is ridiculous. How could a God be like this? And this is exactly what they're thinking. This is exactly what he's, he's saying. Then you start to say, well, God, was, well, God gave me this thing, right? God was tempting me. God was putting me in this spot, right? And one of the main definitions of, of tempting and testing is, uh, is inner enticement of sin, right? So we argue, you know, a lot of guys and even girls struggle with lust, and we say, well, clearly God's just giving me that temptation, so that I can refine my faith, right? And if I struggle, then we feel mad at God because we're like, why has God not taken this from me, right? And we put all this on God and we say, God is just like letting these things happen to me and doesn't care. And then on the other hand, I'm supposed to believe that God is a loving, good God who cares deeply for me, who listens to my prayers, right? But we have all this like, this is my life I've lived. These don't, these don't reconcile. And some people have just not had a lot of this, so it's much easier to be like, yeah, God's good. Don't you believe it? And you're like, well, you haven't lost three people to cancer in the last five years, you know? But, but what he's getting at here is these people are dealing with the exact same problem. They are starting to, 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 to doubt God. And here's the formula that he gives us. And he, he's pretty simple about it. And I know it's hard to understand sometimes. But he says, when you're tempted, don't believe that it's from God. I know it's very simple, but don't believe it. He says, God is good, holy, and right. He does not tempt. He does test, but that's different. He doesn't tempt and he says, temptation comes from man himself, our sinful nature, the fact that we live in a broken, fallen world. I don't need to take much time to show that. And we let it dwell in our hearts, we let it prey on us, and it leads to greater sin and death. Just to clarify, you know, because I, I was reading this, and I was like, well, I think there's two camps here. Like, there's one where I have let a desire in my heart become sin. I have dwelled on it, I have coveted it, I have wanted it and I, I let it become sin. But then there's the other things in the world that happen to us that aren't even related. Like I said, someone just dies, someone gets sick, um, a tree falls on your house, right? These like things that you feel like are just, it, I, I, didn't, I didn't dwell that in my heart and let it happen, right? Like I didn't want that to happen. I never had that in my heart. And so it does feel like there's generally these two different um, uh, realistic trials here. And what, what I want us to think about is the idea that sin is not just what I think or do wrong in my heart, in my hands, in my head. Sin is anything apart from God's righteous intention. Sin is the brokenness of the world in the way that it is not supposed to be. And sin means death. And sin means cancer. And sin means economic hardships. And sin means natural disasters. The world is not the way that it should be. And we take sin and we just like put this little tiny definition and we say, oh, this is sin. I did this thing or you did this thing. You sinned against me. But like the world is full of sin. And when I say the world is full of sin, it is not just in humans' hearts. 
the world, creation, is not as it should be. It is not in perfect harmony in the way God created it. It's broken, and every, sin has implications on all of that. We are not just in a physical battle. We are in a spiritual battle that affects all these type of things. And so, at the end of the day, cancer is terrible, and you didn't desire that, and you didn't do anything necessarily to fabricate that in someone else's life for them to die of cancer, for them to deal with cancer, but we are not in heaven. And because we're not in heaven, we live in a world that just is is difficult and hard sometimes and broken, and everybody is not able to distance themselves from the world of evilness and brokenness. No matter how much money you have, no matter how good your life is, I mean, anybody is capable of, of experiencing hardship. And, and, and so what he's saying here, and he's clinging on to the reality of God, he says in verse 16, do not be led astray, my dear brothers and sisters. And that is what I want us to just, just believe. Is to not be, We're being led astray, and we're believing. Here's, here's what they're believing. They're believing that God's goodness is under question because of some economic hardship or trial or season that seems unfair. Clearly God's not good because he doesn't seem like he's in control and these things are hurting me. And so we question God's goodness in verse 5. Then in verse 13, we suggest that, well, maybe God is temptable and he's tempting and he's, he's, he's playing with this sinful reality to kind of like move his pawns in certain ways, and, and, right? And, and then we, we believe that God shifts then like shadows. He holds his hand out in one hand and says, ask and you'll receive, and then other areas he's not, right? These are the doubts that they had. These are the doubts that we have and, and that he shifts. And, that, and then what happens is, and here's the response, and this is what you'll see in the world today, is when you don't trust um, in the truth, and you start to lean on those things, you lash out. And these people were very tempted to respond with violence, with verbal abuse, with, well, they don't have any integrity. I might as well just be secretive and lie about things too and deceive because I'm being deceived. Why don't, why, I just, I'll deceive too. These Christians are dealing with the, this fire, this refining fire, but they are really struggling with, I might just play the game like everyone else. Because I don't trust that God is actually good. I don't trust that he's actually being truthful about these things because this is my reality. And he's saying, look, you're being led astray. James is just saying, trust me on this. You're being led astray. And so then what he says in verse 17 and 18, he says, all generous giving and every perfect gift is from above. It comes down from the Father of lights with whom there's no variation or even the slightest sin of change. And by his sovereign plan, he gave us birth through the message of truth that we would be a kind of first fruits of all that he had created. He's saying, look, trust in the fact that God is good. And he's, he's saying, look, your trials are real, and they happen, and they suck, and, and a lot of you are just going to have to lean into them. Some of you have been fighting against them, and you're going to you're gonna have to deal with them. And, and you're not always going to come out of the end with all the answers and all, the, all, all feeling great about it, but he's saying, but here's what you've been given, and he just focuses on God had a plan. And he gave us new life through the truth, the good news of Jesus, that we would be a first fruits of all he created. And what that means is that we would be a visual representation of heaven on earth. That in the broken world, that people see tiny glimpses of heaven in the way that we live our lives. And that's what this is all about. That's what this passage is about, that we become a community that is a foretaste of what is to come. This doesn't mean that you don't, like, like I said, it doesn't mean you don't experience trials. It doesn't mean that you don't struggle in the midst of them. I mean, I cling to stuff when I'm struggling, when I'm insecure, right? We, like, have these things that we just try to fill ourselves with. But me becoming more and more like Jesus is not to try to remove trials from my life, not to try to make more money to not have those things, not to try to just avoid hard conversations, not to try to, uh, you know, um, 
live my life in a non-tense way, but that when these trials will come, I can have a vision of what God is doing in the future and trust in his goodness, even if I don't have all the answers in the midst of it, and even if I might never have the answers on this side of heaven. That's what he's getting at here. I think about the words of uh, the late Tim Keller was saying this in an interview because they've been posting a lot because he died a couple weeks ago, and there was this really funny uh, interview um, that he talked about, and I'll invite the band up while I'm, while I'm closing here. He tells us, like, someone's asking him in like, this podcast, and they're like, Tim, uh, you know, in the midst of COVID and all these doubts and, and political turmoil and all this type of stuff, you know, and having just doubts about God, about his presence, about his sovereignty, all this type of stuff, how do you, how do you reconcile, how do you, how do you fight those doubts? And he just gave, like, the most simple answer ever. It was almost too simple. But I thought about it more and more and more, and I was like, yeah. He literally said, when I find myself in times of stress or trials or I'm worried about the future, I just think about one thing. If I believe that Jesus actually died, was buried for three days, and he rose again, if I actually believe that, then I think everything else will be all right. I know it sounds simple, but if we believe that Jesus has power over death, then we believe that Jesus is in control, and Jesus will reconcile this broken world to one that is fully beautiful and heaven, and we have an opportunity to be a part of promoting that and bringing that into the world we live in today, and that's our challenge, and it's hard. So I'm going to give us some time uh, for formation here. And uh, you can participate in these ways that we believe become, become more like Jesus. We're going to sing one more song. And so you can partake in any of these during this last song. We're only going to have one song. So you can take some time and, uh, yeah, and we'll close out. Thank you for listening to the Contrast Church Podcast. To learn more about us and how you can be a part of it, visit contrast.church.